We would also like to respectfully acknowledge the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, paying our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome, Welcome to, to Team, Team Spirits. Spirits. Yes. Very quickly jumped on this podcasting thing. Honey messaged me a couple of days yes. ago just wanting to start a podcast and I said yes. Yes. And here we are. We're just like, let's do it. So it's, yeah, it's about, it's a true crime and like paranormal. If you haven't picked up already, we are big fans of My yeah. Favourite Murder. Yeah, we love My Favourite Murder. So we're, like, heavily influenced. Um, we're going to try and not steal all of their content. <laughs> True. But, you know, you sh- everyone else should listen to them as well. So, like... Are you a Karen or a Georgia? I, I feel like... We talked about this the other day. Oh, yeah. And, I'm like, I always felt like podcast. I was... Yeah, I just felt like I was Georgia. And you said you were such a Georgia, right? I thought I was a Georgia, but you said I was a Karen. So, I mean, I'll but take that. But then I thought you would be Karen. I yeah, will, I was like, oh, I'm I always think you'd be Karen. <laughs> but I actually think now, like, I was thinking about it after yeah. we talked. And I actually think I'm I'm a Karen. You're the Karen? You're taking the Karen role? Yeah, I'm the Karen. I can the be the Georgia. Yeah. I don't mind. I'm happy yeah. with either. Yeah, I think I think that's a good, um, that's like the, that's the combo. That's okay. who I Okay. so this podcast this particular episode we haven't introduced Um, ourselves oh i'm honey i'm camille (laughs) and uh we are your hosts for this podcast and we are also the creators of it Mm -hmm. because you know how sometimes the the like hosts aren't the creators well we are both of those things (laughs) we're everything (laughs) we are everything we yes we are team spirit together spirits with an s i actually i keep saying it wrong i keep like saying our podcast name wrong what do you call it i keep calling it team spirit i love team spirit so much more see we wanted to call it team spirit no team spirit and um but we looked up on spotify to see if there was any team spirit podcasts yeah and they were tons of religious podcasts so many so we just thought, and we just didn't want to yeah. get mixed up. Imagine if like someone like was looking for like a uh, like really like religious <laughs> like motivational podcast, and they just like start listening to this, and it's just like murder, death, like yeah. Oh my god, that'd be so awkward. Um, so yeah, we're gonna try and like not get sued along this journey. We've got ghosts on our fine. cover art, so it kind of gives a yes. little signal. The ghosts, you know, maybe they give it away a little bit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, as I was gonna say before, this episode is um it's about all the or like the particular um murders or like crimes that uh really affected us when we were younger and like kind of got us interested in like true crime and um just like the, this whole like world of uh murder. <laughs> but obviously, like you know, they um <clears throat> like they're not nice at all or like I want to be tactful and like they're really tragic things that happen and obviously like they happen to people and everything and you know I don't want to be like flippant about that we don't want to be romanticizing the stories or glorifying the murderer but we are just so interested in mm, yeah I guess the psychology behind it and I guess the paranoia we face with it exactly the anxiety that and like just the way that these particular stories like I know with my story like it really like I 
it stayed with me throughout like my entire life thinking about it or like almost in a way as like a cautionary tale like a reminder so it's definitely like induced some uh, anxiety Mm. but I feel like that's kind of like why we want to look more into it it's like as, as a way to in some ways like alleviate the anxieties that we feel around these things because I feel like if you can gain more information like around these things and like understand cases and like the way that people like work and like how these things happen then like it takes away that like naivety of thinking like oh it's not going to happen to me or whatever and then you kind of have that like really good understanding of like the world and how it's just a terrible place (laughs) um but yeah like this one's just about like those stories that are really impactful but do you think that sounded all right yeah I think so I think so I think it's hard to explain isn't it because like I don't know I feel like I'm trying to think of like I'm kind of like yes I'm this was an interesting story but also like it's so fucked up and like you know it's just like finding that balance and I Mm. think I won't feel like this with like any other stories it's just that this one is so 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 close to home Mm. yeah do should we like should we start yeah he's going first do you want to go first do yeah who should go first I don't know what's like a a good way to to decide like a fair way um you go first just because I'm telling you to (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm happy to go first okay I just want to listen Um, to you because I'm jittery and I'll I'll just like okay yeah maybe like you can warm out oh your nervous list Mm -hmm. oh my god that's so cute it's it's... I I love that watch out for the snort (laughs) once you make me laugh I'll start like snorting oh my god I I know I've heard the snort before (laughs) I know the snort oh should we say like how we know each other oh it's so cute no I actually love it um, should we talk about how we know each other? Yeah. As well? Just yeah. Because if people, so like for people that don't know us, um, we met in, uh, in high school. In year eight and, when I moved. Yeah. In year eight when Camille moved. Um, and we went, well, I don't know if we should say where we went to. I we live we in can. Melbourne. We went to a school in Melbourne. Yeah. Like, cause for privacy reasons, like when we get famous, That's we true. don't want people <laughs> Actually, we don't go there anymore. We don't go in there anymore. I think it's fine. Okay, we went, we went to, to Fitzroy, Fitzroy High School. <laughs> yeah, we went to Fitzroy High School. So, like, yeah, uh, that's fine. That's out there. Um, and, yeah, we've been friends for, like, a really long time, uh, even though Camille, like, just up and left to Chicago at one point. Um, but she's back now, so it's fine. Um, and we're both 18. You're 18, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah turning 19 this year yeah after um, honey i'm a scorpio honey's a libra oh, i'm a libra <laughs> i'm such a libra wow <laughs> uh yeah so that's that's how we know each other like i think we should just say that so yeah i think that's know. nice <laughs> um but yeah let's let's like get into it i'll read you my story okay i'm excited so i'm gonna tell you like the story and then i think afterwards i'll tell you like Um, my connection to it and like why it's like something that is like really like kind of particularly close to home for me okay um so and just FYI as well it takes place in like my um like hometown like where I was born um and like where I grew up as Mm -hmm. well so um I I got my like info from um chillingcrimes.com wikipedia and murderpedia as well just so like we don't get sued because <laughs> that's where I got all my info from um but yeah like I put it into my own words so it should be fine um so I'm doing the murder of Sean Kingy um have you heard of it no 
No. Okay. I didn't think you would have. I thought it's kind of like a, it, it happened a while ago. So mm-hmm. um, I'll just start. Sean Kingy, she was born in New Zealand and um, she was of Australian and Maori descent. Um, and this took place in 1987 when she was living with her parents, Barry and Linda, in Noosa Heads on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, which is where I'm from, like Noosa. Noosa's, like, it's so beautiful. It's really idyllic, like, beach town. Like, have you been to Noosa before Um, in Queensland? I feel like I should say yes. I, I don't know. <laughs> A lot of people, like, I often, I you know, say where I'm from and everyone's like, oh, my God, Noosa, wow, so beautiful, <laughs> like. Tons of people, you know, go there on holiday. Like, it's a really, like, big holiday destination. But it's, like, a pretty small little town. But, like, the beaches are, like, so beautiful. And it's just, like, you know, really warm and sunny. And, like, it has that, like, it's always had that real, like, I don't know, it just has, like, a nice vibe. Mm. Like, it's just, like, all surfers and stuff. Like, it's a lot busier now than it used to be. And especially, like, this is in, uh, this, like, uh, case took place in 1987. So it would have been pretty chill there, like, you know, not that many people, like, just a really small, like, close-knit community. Um, it's just, like, super relaxed. It feels like nothing bad would ever happen there, even, like, if you go there now and it's actually quite busy. Like, it still feels – still got that kind of vibe, just like those beach towns, you know? Yeah. I remember um, now. I've never been. I went to somewhere okay. in Queensland and we went to a water park. Yeah. yeah, I feel like there's, you know, there's um a lot of places along, like, the – Queensland coast that are kind of like this as well but I think Noosa just has a particular like vibe and like uh, just a lot of people I know like love going there Mm. um but yeah so like kids you know they'd be riding their bikes and skateboarding and surfing and swimming and everything like it's just like a very chill kind of safe feeling place everyone knows everyone even now like if you live there like you just you know everyone and actually when I was telling my parents this story so I told my dad um, today while I was, like, at work with him. Yeah. And, like, I was talking about some people, which I'll point out when I read a bit further along. But he, like, knew all, like, the people in the story. He was like, oh, I know him. Oh, and I was that's like, so freaky, okay. though. So, yeah, so it's, like, people people know everyone. Um, And just a little quote as well at the beginning by uh, Detective Sergeant Bob Atkinson from Noosa Head CIB. He just said, like, I would have thought that 5.30 in the afternoon in Noosa in summer would have been one of the safest places in Australia for a kid to be. So that's kind of, like, that says it all, kind of. It's it's very ominous considering, like, just the whole story and everything, but it really was that kind of place. Like, you really just feel totally safe there and everything, which is why it's it was, like, a real shock. Um, so of Sean, who um, we're talking about, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald said that she was a true daughter of sunny, carefree, friendly Noosa. So that's a quote. Um, so like she, she just was kind of like the poster girl for this beautiful town and, and not in any way that like, you know, she was like very well known or anything like that. It's just when you think of like a young Noosa, like kind of tween or whatever, she was, she was 12 years old. Um, that's kind of like who you would think of. So she was really gorgeous, even like, even at 12, like she looks actually quite a lot older when I was looking at photos of her, like she's so pretty, but she looks like she could be maybe like. 15 or 16 but she was 12 um turning 13 she has really long blonde hair like big blue eyes she's got really tan skin she was really tall she was like 167 centimeters at 12 wow so like that's very tall like, that's I'm, really tall. I'm like 164 centimeters or something Me so she's too. super tall oh really yeah. we're the same height oh. <laughs> wow <laughs> that's cool Um, But yeah, she's really tall for like a 12 year old. Um, And she was super athletic. She loved sports and she was really into playing like netball. And um, 
she loved riding her bike with her friends and stuff. Um, and like the people who knew her would kind of, they would describe her as being quite quiet and shy, but she was really well liked at school. Like she was actually very popular and everything. And she had been invited to a party that she was looking forward to. So on the 27th of November, 1987, Sean finished school and she met up with her mum at the local shops uh, to buy some fabric from the fabric store so that they could make her an outfit to wear to this party that she was really excited for. Um, and at about 4.30, they finished shopping and decided to head home. They lived like a kilometre from the shops, So they lived like literally like five minutes away. And Sean had her bike with her because she had ridden to school. Um, so she decided to ride home through like um, there's like a little nearby park um, that goes behind the shopping centre. And her mum was just going to walk home. They're literally like, you know, minutes difference. Um, her mum was just going to walk home like along the path while Sean rode. So it was like about a four minute ride from where they had been um, through Pinaru Park, which is the park that I was talking about, to their home. And it's like a, you know, like a seven minute walk or something. So they should have arrived home with only like minutes difference between them. But Linda arrived home and Sean wasn't there. And she should have obviously been there before her because she was riding. Um, but she kind of just assumed like, you know, maybe she'd seen her friends in the park, you know, it's like kind of a bit of a hangout spot and, um, like her friends would be there after school and it was about that time. So she was just like, oh, she's probably seen some of her friends and, um, you know, she's just hanging out with them. But she kind of got more and more worried as time went on and sort of just felt like, you know, she wouldn't, um, she wouldn't like just do that without telling her like she wouldn't just stay out for like hours and not say something and I was just thinking as well I was reading this story I was like fuck like oh is she like did she, did she text her or something and I'm like it's 1987 like, there's no like self you know you can't like just message your mom and be like hey sorry like just ran into a friend you know I'm gonna be like a little bit later or something you know it's just like ugh, so um frustrating to read but yeah anyway so at about 8 p.m her um Sean's dad Barry comes home and he, you know, they talk about how, like, Sean hasn't, you know, come home yet. And so they decide, like, they're going to go out and look for her. So it's dark by this time. They take a flashlight and they go out to retrace her steps from the <clears throat> from the shops to her house. So when they get into the park, they find her yellow 10-speed bike and it's, like, propped up against a fence. And they immediately go to the police and report her as missing. And this was, like pretty I was like really happy to read this because um it said despite the late notice police were able to assist in having a missing missing persons report for Kingy put into the newspaper for the next day oh wow that's really started collecting information like instantly and you know how like you always hear like when a young girl goes missing or whatever or a young person goes missing they just like give it 48 hours yeah she's she's just run away exactly and it's so frustrating it's just like really yeah but like they actually did a really good job like they straight away they were like you know it's not it's totally weird it's not like her and the police accepted that I think as well because it's such a small place like every like the police knew her you know mm. like everyone there's such a community knew her, and I think yeah just like this really close-knit community and everything I think they just decided like no like something's definitely wrong Um, so they did that, which was really good. Um, and they started collecting information about people who had been in the park at the time of the disappearance, but there were no leads regarding Sean's disappearance until six days later on December 3rd, which was actually just two weeks off her 13th birthday, um, when they found her body. Mm -hmm. So that ended the, you know, she was changed from being a missing person, missing person to someone who like a, a, 
what do they say? Like a um has been murdered. Yeah, but there's like a term for it. Um, Maybe cut this bit out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's like a DP, like a deceased person or something. Uh, But I don't, I don't really want to say that. But my head's saying Jane Doe, but that's for when you don't know who the person is. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's like a term like that when they change, they should change it. But anyway, she's no longer a missing person. So Sean's body was found in Castaways Creek, which like I've been there, like. It's just so weird, like, to think about this. Sean's body was found in Castaways Creek um, by a fruit picker 15 kilometres away from where her bike had been found. So she was, you know, quite a way away. Um, she was still wearing her school uniform, which is, like, I just, oh, it's so awful. Um, and an autopsy revealed that she had been raped, assaulted, strangled, and stabbed 12 times and then thrown into the nearby creek in an effort to, like, discard of her body. So it's, like, just so brutal like you know it's so horrible um so upon the announcement that her body had been found in castaways um police received a really essential tip off from a well-known surfer um bill wallace who had been in the area with his friend elizabeth young and they were at castaways beach the day that sean was murdered um and he had recounted that at about 4 p.m on friday which was literally like 90 minutes before Sean disappeared, he and his friend um, Elizabeth had returned um, to his four-wheel drive in the small car park up at Castaways Creek and had noticed that there was a man hanging around there um, in a car and he had experienced a bit of trouble previously. Um, Wallace, the surfer guy, had experienced a bit of trouble um, in the past with like uh, car theft and stuff Mm -hmm. and so he like just thought it was weird and then the person in the car just sped off in a... um, in a white Holden station wagon. and It's always the white station felt, wagons. I know, I know. and <laughs> But, like, he just felt like there was something, like, you know, weird about it. And, like, I think he kind of just thought it was something, like, oh, maybe he was, like, trying to steal my car or he was, like, looking for parts or something. But, yeah, he, like, wrote down the number plate because he was, like, that was weird experience. He had Isn't a, like, it really amazing how, like, human beings, we can sense when something's off? I know. Yeah, it's just so crazy. Like, it's so lucky that he did that. Just being like, okay, this person, like, there's something not quite right about this. Like, and then to actually make that active choice to be like, I'm going to write down the number plate. Like, there's just like, you know, like, how do we know that? Like, it's just, it's so lucky. Um, So yeah, he'd written it down on a scrap of piece, um, scrap of paper and stuck it to his dashboard. And when Sean's body was found, he thought about it because it was right in that area and he gave the police the number plate, which was LLE429. So the dusty white 1973 Holden Kingswood station wagon, which had interstate registration, was found to be linked with three other assaults when the police checked it out. Um, and upon investigation, police discovered that had it was um, belonging to a woman who was 40 years old. She was a mother of six children, and her name was Val May Beck. So Val May and her husband, Barry Watts, who had married a year earlier, they both had really extensive criminal records and they were out on bail. Um, so Val May and Barry had been living on a property in Lowood, which was a, it's like a small farming town about 50 kilometres west of Brisbane. Um, and they had driven their station wagon like all the way up the coast, staying overnight at truck stops until they'd reached Noosa, looking for, literally looking for possible victims. So um, when police drove down to investigate uh, the that residence um, in Lowood, where uh, they believed Valmay and Barry had been staying, they found signs that the couple had fled the house on the day that Sean's body had been found. So 
you know, probably watching the news or something, and they'd left behind dye kits and cut off hair, which for me, I don't know, I just find that so creepy. Like, it's just like, and it's so stupid as well. Like, it's just so obvious. Like, if you've left all that stuff for people to see, like, that's kind of just highlighting exactly yeah what you've done so yeah they you know they tried to change their appearances and they just left all the evidence um but a few days later the owner of the property that they had been staying on received a money order for rent from the couple on the 10th of december from the entrance new south wales so they just completely gave away exactly where they were and um like undercover police that were all in like plain clothes and stuff were able to locate the and arrest the couple so they kind of like acted like they were you know friends and then they talked to them and then they they got them uh on the 12th of december and then they were extradited to um queensland from the on the 14th of december so the couple were charged on the 15th of december with the abduction rape and murder of kingy so during the questioning what's refused to speak like he what's is the um the guy barry sorry mm-hmm. um he like wouldn't speak um but Valmay was like really talkative and between um Valmay's comments and secret recordings from their adjacent holding cells the investigators were able to recreate the crime so what happened was uh Barry had decided that he wanted someone younger which is this is like really gross it's just awful but yeah he decided he wanted to be with someone younger and he had like all these fantasies to be like, with a virgin, and he said, like, he wanted to be the first and last sexual partner of a young girl. Like, it's just, like, so fucked up. Like, I, I don't know, like, uh, anyway, can't even begin to understand. But, yeah, they visited, um, like, a bunch of beaches near uh, Noosa and, like, around the coast um, in that area, including Castaways um, Creek, which is just a small beach south of Sunshine Beach. Um, And he was, like, uh, drinking and driving, and they just were, like, you know, basically cruising the area looking for people. And at about 3.30, um, as all the, like, Noosa kids, you know, came out of their schools and stuff and school had finished, um, Barry apparently said to Valme, today's the day. So every time he saw a potential victim, she was always, like, with friends or parents and um, he had apparently begun to just get really, like, uh, annoyed and, like, kind of fed up with... Uh, waiting around um and then I guess as they were driving they saw um they saw Sean riding on her bike through the park and um at this point um, Val May had said that you know he was very like agitated and he just wanted to like find someone already so they had been you know driving around all day and then they saw Sean in the park and uh he said like you know let's like I want I want to try and get her and um, so Valme basically pulled over to the side and had parked and um, Valme called out to Sean who is riding and Sean like stopped and kind of like came over and she was like oh I'm I'm looking for my poodle like I've lost a poodle she's got a little pink bow and you know Sean didn't even like she didn't like offer to get in the car or anything like that she just was like oh you know sorry I haven't seen it and while she was talking to Valme um Barry had gotten out of the car and come up behind her and he basically just jumped on her, gagged her and put her in the back of the car, which to me, like, I was just, you know, like the park is kind of, I guess, quite like, it's not like isolated, but it is a little bit just like out of the way. It's like behind the shopping centers, like a little bit deserted, Mm. but you just think like for a man to be literally like grabbing a girl from behind and dragging her into, into their car, like you just think someone could have seen it, like someone like 
on the street or something, but like, no, no one even saw. And it's just, yeah, like when I just think about that, it's just like a place that I feel like, and it's not even that late at night. It's literally like 5, 5 p.m. I think, or like 4.30 between, you know, in that kind of time period. And I guess she's, you know, just like a young girl and like he, she was completely surprised and like jumped and there's no one else to like see. And he like gagged her straight away. So like, you know, she couldn't scream, like no one could hear her or anything. Um, so while Sean was talking to Valme, um, oh yeah, I already said that. Uh, basically they drove her, um, 12 kilometers away to the, um, Tinbira forest. Uh, I think my mum, my mum was trying to show me how to pronounce it. And I, I don't know if I was pronouncing it correctly just then, but I think it's Tinbira. Yeah. So I'm going to stick with that. Um, Valme uses to cut. (laughs) I'm just nodding and smiling. I'm just gonna roll with it. Um, I'm sure people will correct us when <laughs> correction people corner. listen to us. <laughs> yeah, I know we'll have to do that as well. Um, but anyway, so she used the scissors to cut the tape from Sean's mouth, and she was being really careful not to cut her hair because Watts was like, um, this is Barry. Watts was a really like particular about it. Like he was like giving her all these instructions, and he said like, don't cut her hair and everything. And like it's just really sad. Like she did have really beautiful hair, but yeah. Um, and they cut away her underwear and then at no stage did Sean cry. Valme just literally stood there and like, you know, so she was the one that like basically kind of facilitated it all, but she just like stood back and her husband, you know, was basically, well, he was like raping her and, you know, doing all these terrible things and she was just like standing there. Um, and she stated this just like made really made me like shudder like it's so creepy but Valme stated that Sean never cried never shed a tear a brave little girl um she never uttered a peep she just did everything that he told her so I don't know it's just like I guess you know maybe she was thinking as well if she just went along with it perfectly and she didn't like fight or like cry or make a scene exactly that he would you know he would let her well she's in survival mode at that point like she's doing yeah everything exactly her body tells and her like to do the to shock survive. of it exactly yeah yeah and um so basically like while Sean's parents had been like reporting her missing and like the police have been trying to get this image into the into the next day's paper and everything Valme and Barry had basically they had gotten rid of uh, Sean's body um and they had gone to pick up some milk and gone home to watch TV on the couch, which they later told, like, investigators. Like, that's what they were doing. And it just, like, makes me sick, like, to think that, you know, like, while all the, like, this terrible, terrible thing has occurred and, like, how her parents are feeling and, like, they're going into that, like, emotion of, like, you know, complete, like, just dread and, like, fear. And they're just, like, getting milk and watching TV. Um, and apparently Beck had told Valme not to worry and that he had no guilt feelings. Like he, he was not guilt, like he did not care. Um, so when Sergeant Atkinson was interviewing Valme after her arrest, he said that he knew that she had six children from previous marriages, which I did mention as well. Mm. And one of them was a teenage daughter who was like the same age as Sean. Um, and it just, he said it seemed beyond comprehension that he was facing a woman from whom no motherly instincts had surfaced to save Sean. Um, which like, I think like, you know, of course, like, I guess there, you know, you don't want to like put it all down to like 
oh, she was a woman, like, she should have experienced these instincts. But Mm. you just think that, like, as a mum of, like, six kids and, like, you have a daughter just like her and, like, you're literally just watching your husband, like, do these awful, awful, awful things. You would think as a decent Um, person you'd do something, but... You would just think that you would have to, like, no matter the fact that it's your husband, like, you would just have, like, she could have just, you know grabbed a stick or something and like hit him in the head or I don't know like just do something Mm. or just like not literally like lure a girl into your car like it's just like yeah it's just so weird to think about that but she you know obviously she must have been like you know suffering something extreme as well we don't know what Um, he was doing to her either like they could have been exactly yeah I think as well like you know they both had extensive criminal records and like you know, living, kind of living a life where, you know, maybe she was abused as well, like, throughout her life, and, you know, he was obviously abusive, um, which we can see. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, anyway, basically, um, as uh, he, uh, Sergeant Atkinson, led uh, Valmay through her statement, among her admissions was the location of a bundle of murder scene items, which included a knife, belt, masking tape, uh, with pieces of Sean's hair attached, which had been thrown into Six Mile Creek um, as they were, like, driving away. So the crew went there that night, and the next morning um, the police arrived, and on the first dive they found everything that she had said. So that was, you know, the evidence that they needed to completely go, yep, that was them. They did that. And only two people, he said, um, Atkins said, uh, only two people on God's earth knew where that stuff was, and she was one of them. So that basically was, like, the um, the neat little bow on mm. top of like everything else where they were able to go 100 percent. so on o- october 20th 1988 in the queensland supreme court justice kelly sentenced val may beck to three years for abduction 10 years for rape and life for murder and later sentenced um barry watts to three years for abduction 15 years for rape and life for murder he recommended that barry watts papers be marked never to be released so yeah Good. And I think, yeah, and he hasn't been, uh, like, he's obviously never going to get, you know, parole or anything like that, but he's still alive and he's still in prison. Um, Valmay unsuccessfully applied quite a few times for parole. Uh, she expressed her regret and her assistance in Kingy's case, but she was also involved um, with Barry in, like, a bunch of other unsolved cases that they think, you know, they uh, were involved in, uh, involving, like, lots of young girls and stuff around Australia um, including there was a case of Helen Mary um, Feeney, who was a 31-year-old student whose body has never been found. But Val May said, like, she knew where the body was and she said, like, that they had um, hid it somewhere in Brisbane. But they never found it. But, you know, it seems like they were involved in quite a lot of things. Um, yeah, so it's like, but they just don't, you know, they can't find the evidence as well. And it's like in the 80s, it's just like a weird time for, like, there's no, like, DNA or anything. But, yeah, basically, um, he, Barry confessed to Sean's murder in 2007. So it took him, like, a really fucking long time to confess. Um, And in 2008, Valmay died uh, of health complications in hospital. And the police minister at the time, Robert Schwarten, stated that, harsh as it may sound, and people may judge me on that, I don't think there will be many Queenslanders who would shed a tear in her direction, and there would be some who would cheer. So she was also, like, labelled one of Queensland's most hated women, like, you know. But, you know, it's obviously not just her, like, they <laughs> both were. Yeah. It's interesting, when I was researching, you know, a lot of the stuff, like, 
a lot of the articles were really focused on her and like what she did and like I actually found it a bit hard to find at the end like I was like oh you know what happened to Barry Watts like was he um you know is he still in prison has he died like what's happening with him because so many of the articles were just talking about her and I think like and even though like she she was very much involved in it but like he was the one who kind of committed the crime in like the way that in the fact you know he he raped Sean and everything um but yeah I think that people were just so like shocked by the fact that this woman was there and present and she was a mother and she was involved in this and she allowed it to happen and she facilitated it and everything um but basically I'll just talk about um like my connection Mm -hmm. to the case so Sean's mum was actually my kindergarten teacher when oh, I wow. was, yeah, when I was in kinder um, in Queensland. Um, I used to go to this little, this really cute kindergarten called Eni Creek, and she was one of my kindergarten teachers, and she was always really lovely. Um, I don't really remember very well, but my mum said she was really, really kind and everything. Um, and then when I got older, I went to the same school that Sean went to, which was Sunshine Beach. Um, state school I'm pretty sure she went there I couldn't find that exactly but there was a plaque like a memorial plaque at the school um and it said something really awful like it said like um this plaque you know lies here or whatever for Sean who left the school gates and never came back or something like that and it was just like something really like just could you have said they could have done something a little bit more poetic (laughs) like she was she was a beautiful girl or she was so you know she was such a smart student or just something like that but I think it was meant to be there as like a cautionary thing like so that kids would look at it when they would leave the school and stuff to be like really aware because like this was kind of just one of those things like Noosa had not experienced something like this I think you know up until this point like you know I'm not 100% on that but it was just such a like a shock you know it's just a beautiful small place and then just for something like this crime is so it's so brutal it's so awful and I think because these um killers were just so opportunistic in who they found like they weren't like looking for Sean specifically it's mm. just wrong place at the wrong time they saw her she was gorgeous she was really kind and she stopped because she was concerned for you know this poodle that <laughs> you know obviously didn't exist and she was you know she was taken and I was thinking as well like my mom always used this story like I was told this story I remember hearing about it when I was really young like you know like five or something and like my mom wasn't trying to be like a psycho and tell her child a murder story but she just was telling me because I was like really trusting of strangers and like if someone had said like hey do you want to come into my car and like eat a magnum like I would have been like yes yeah free magnum and like (laughs) like I would have been so easy to just be like lured into a car or something or like I would just go up and talk to strangers like and my mom would have to be like where's honey and I'm just talking to some rando so she she told me this because she wanted me to like be really aware of it and it did really freak me out and I think it like did make me aware um and also just the fact that like um I remember my mom said as well like you know, it's not just, like, men that you have to be scared of, because obviously, like, as a young girl, um, you're taught to be scared of men. Yeah. Um, and just in general, uh, being a woman, it's scary. Men are pretty scary. Um, but (laughs) yeah, like, the fact that there was a woman there as well, like, and, you know, you just can't, like, you think as well, you think, oh, maybe I can, 
you can you can trust this person like even if like I feel like if a dude pulled up in his car and was like hey I'm looking for my lost dog could you help me I would immediately be like no like that's really weird but I think if a woman did that even now like oh I would totally go like hi you would just be like yes okay like it's just that that kind of trust that you have Mm. I feel like because as well that whole like I guess motherly thing and like also it's like the same gender as like yeah you're like you know what I go through I know what you go through yeah exactly like we think that women will look out for each other um so I think that was really shocking but I yeah and it was always sort of like a cautionary tale like to be really careful but obviously like you know a a cautionary tale to an extent because Sean didn't do anything wrong and like even if she had, like, voluntarily got in the car because the lady was like, hey, can you help me look? Like, she still wouldn't have done anything wrong. Like, no. it still wouldn't be her fault. Um, but I think it's just, like, that thing of, like, just trying to be as aware as possible of the fact that, like, there are really bad people out there. And, yeah, so that was always, like, something that was told to me. Um, and also, I talked to my mum. I was, like, reading her this story. And... Um, my mom said that when I was, like, little, she took me to that park, which is the Pinaru Park, mm. um, where Sean had been adu- abducted from, and she said that she got a really, like, bad vibe, and that it was, like, quite a strange little area, and it made her feel really uneasy, so we decided to leave. She was like, no, there's something, like, weird about this, so, um, yeah, we decided to leave, and it wasn't until, like, literally the other day when I was like, hey, I'm doing this story, and I read it to her that she was like, oh my god, that's so weird. I didn't know that she was abducted there. Mum thought that she had been oh, really? abducted in um Yeah, in this other place. Like I think she thought it was in like the Noosa Heads Forest or something. And I was like, no, she was abducted in that park. And she was like, Wow, it's really strange that you say that because when I was there I just got this like awful feeling and it just felt so like just like just like not safe. And so we decided to leave. So I thought that was like kind of a weird little thing yeah. that happened as well. Um, and yeah, also this happened. So it was 1987 and my mum was in year 11 at the time. Um, and she lived in Brisbane and like, she remembers all the story and she just remembers being like, just so shocked and thinking like, it's just like the most disgusting thing that she'd ever heard. And so like, it really stuck with her like her whole life. And I think that's why as well, she, you know, even after she had me and like, she, she would think about it and, you know that's why she decided to tell me as well so that I could be like aware um and also one last thing that surfer I don't know mm. if I said this yeah already, yeah but the surfer yeah that surfer guy um Bill Wallace yeah my dad knew him so because I was telling dad this story this morning I was like oh I'm doing this for the podcast and I told him and I was like oh this guy Bill Wallace he like was the one that literally broke the case like they wouldn't have they probably wouldn't have found them if that guy hadn't have written that number plate down because, like, yeah, they just didn't have any leads, basically, regarding that. And Dad was like, oh, my God, yeah, I know that guy. Like, you know, yeah, like, I- I'm mates with him. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. So there's a lot of people in this story that we know and, that you know, like, kind of just a part of that little community that we used to be a part of as well. So, yeah, that is my story. That's the Heavy. murder of Sean Kingy. So tragic, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was a real bummer. Um, oh, mine's just about to get a whole lot worse. Really? Okay. 
Um, do you, do you mind do you if I like else? if I like, um pause? I'm so busting right now. Like I've had to unbutton. My oh my pants. god. Okay. I'll should I stop the recording? And um. Yeah. I'll toilet? hang up and I'll call you back. I'll just okay, quickly easy. run to the toilet. It's like two. Okay. Minutes. Go to the toilet. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm good. I made myself a tea. Oh, I was thinking I wanted to do that, but um, it's fine. I'll just have one after the. You can go make yourself a tea. No, it's all right. Okay. I'll be fine. Okay. I want to hear your story. Okay. Actually, maybe I should make myself a tea. Go make yourself a tea. Because then, then you can Yeah, because then I can enjoy story. it. But you go okay, make I'll make a tea. tea. I'll drink my tea. I'll be quick. Well, I was actually, when you told me that your story was started in 1987, I was very yeah. freaked out because my story starts in <gasps> 1987. And my oh story my is also about a man who rapes children, girls. That's so weird. I think, okay. I think, you know how our theme was like stories that have terrified us Effect. and have made us yes. like, I think it's because oh we God. related so much to being those little girls and like the big scary boogeyman yeah. and all that kind yeah, of Yeah, for sure. And also maybe as well a bit like, it's like the era that, I mean, I don't know how you um, heard your story or whatever, but it's like the era that our parents grew up in probably like that kind of time. So like for me, it was like, my mum was the one who was like around at the time and then it just got filtered through like other stuff and then somehow I've been you know really scared by it as well exactly well my so. my nan is the person that told me about this story okay yes yeah, so it's like the same kind of thing yeah I think I was about 10 or 11 um and I'd like mm-hmm. told her like I'm obsessed with this stuff tell me everything you know about murders and everything and she gave me yeah. all these wikipedia articles on all these murders that have happened around around like that she grew up with I guess and one of the the stories that I read and have stuck with me it's the unsolved case of Mr. Cruel. Mr. Cruel? Mm -hmm. Have you heard of it? I think I have I think I have. (laughs) Yeah. You start but I'm not sure. Okay so I got I pretty much ripped off this lady on YouTube almost word for word (laughs) her name is Samantha Melanie so thank you Samantha um your information was great And I also looked at Wikipedia, of course. On Saturday, August 22nd, 1987, a man broke into a home in Lower Plenty at 4am by removing a pane glass from a broken window. Um, Lower Plenty is in Melbourne. This is based in Melbourne. This is like a Melbourne story. I know this story. I know it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm excited for it. He was armed with a knife and gun. He wore a black balaclava. And this is the scariest. You've seen this balaclava, right? Yes. Oh my god. It's the one with the pictures. Oh okay, so for people that haven't seen it, for people that haven't seen it, it looks like how you would look if like someone walked into you on the toilet, like the kind of ooh, but like a scarier (laughs) version. It does, doesn't it? It's that kind of facial expression. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's really scary. And it's like those little holes they just cut so small. Oh and the contrast stitching. Oh, Oh. Uh, yeah, it looks so creepy. Like, if you haven't seen it, look it up right now, Mr. Cruel. We should post it on our Instagram at Team yes, Spirits we should. Podcast. We should put a picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow our Instagram, everyone. Uh, at what is it again? It's Team, Team Spirits, Spirits Podcast. Podcast. Anyway, terrible time on, to plug Kirill. our Instagram. Sorry, just gotta plug it. <laughs> gotta get them to. to, to check okay, it out. so the intruder snuck into the bedroom of the parents and told them to lie on their stomachs. He then tied their hands and ankles together, blindfolded and gagged them, and locked them into their own wardrobe. He then went into the room of their six-year-old son and tied him to his bed, also blindfolding and gagging him. 
Um, a little side note, the knots that he was using were commonly used amongst people with nautical skills or sailors. Mm. People that can tie knots are so terrifying. Like good knots. <laughs> yeah. They're already creepy. They're already creepy. You're either a boy scout or you're a serial killer. It's terrifying. <laughs> exactly. Or you're both. Or you're both. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. He then creeped okay. into the 11-year-old girl's room and raped her. And this assault continued for around two hours. Within those oh two hours, he took breaks to just walk around the house and he made himself a oh meal. Um, and the oh, my God. Yeah, terrifying. And the identity of the little girl has remained anonymous. The young girl told the police that during a break, he used the phone to make a threatening phone call stating that whoever was on the other line must move their children or they'll be next. And he used the word bozo mm-hmm. a lot. The police looked into this and they- Wait, sorry, what word did he use? Bozo, like Ruby Redfoot. Like, you know how she said bozo? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so weird. It's very weird. That's such a, like, non-threatening mm. word. Like, you bozo. Like, what are you doing over there? Like, it just sounds so, like, silly it's, for, like, someone so, so creepy. Silly. It's so silly. It actually makes silly. it creepier. But every, Ugh. like, he has been known to say that word a lot. It's, like, I don't oh, know many God. people that say bozo. No, that's very unique. I wonder if, like, uh, this is unsolved, isn't it? Right? Yeah, yeah. I just wonder if someone out there was like, oh, my neighbor used to always say bozo. Know, you know, like I something know. like that. Or like if someone will listen to this. Ugh. I don't know. Okay, keep going. Sorry. But that phone call, when the police looked into it, it turned out to be a red herring. And that's something that he continued to do throughout oh. the entire case was tons and tons of red herrings just to throw the police off completely. And That's before so he left, so he left the little girl, before he left, he cut the phone line and he stole a box of classic records and a blue jacket. What the hell? I reckon he was a policeman. <laughs> That's my, I reckon, like, okay, okay. Okay. Keep going. On December 27th, 1988, the intruder broke into a Ringwood home at 5.30 in the morning. He once again held a knife and a handgun. And this time, it mixed, um, he like changed his look. He wasn't wearing the scary balaclava anymore. He was wearing a blue okay. one and blue overalls. Yeah. In this house, there was a mother, a father named John Willis, or Wills, sorry, and their four daughters. Mm-hmm. John Wills was woken up with a gun pointed at his temple while the intruder stated, don't mm-hmm. be a hero. He once again oh asked, I know, he once again asked the parents to lie on their stomachs. He then tied their hands and ankles together and gagged, gagged and blindfolded them. He assured them that he was only there for money, to which he only took $35 from their bedside tables, and then he cut the phone lines. The intruder made his way into the bedroom of the four sisters, and this is like the scariest bit that I find so terrifying. Mm. He called out to one of their names. This was 10-year-old Sharon Wills. He knew her name. Oh, my God. So that's so creepy. Like, And also it's like not like... It's not like if it happened now and you just go maybe like he saw me on Instagram, Facebook or something. Yeah. Like, or he's seen that. It's like literally it's the 80s. So it's like he had to have like known them in Mm -hmm. some way. He grabbed Sharon. He put tape over her eyes and a bull gag in her mouth and then he Mm. abducted her. 18 hours later, Sharon was released on the grounds of Bayswater High School wearing only a green plastic garbage bag. Just after midnight, a woman had found her standing on the street. Um, and Sharon was unable to give a physical appearance of her attacker because she was blindfolded the entire time, but she described him as being softly spoken but rather blunt and gentle. Gentle. Gentle, yeah. Gentle, like, that's just, I don't know, like, it's so, it's just, like, such a creepy, like, way to describe as well, like, like, if someone who is, like, 
literally like a rapist is being like gentle gentle or like speaking like softly like that just is so disturbing and while she was in his captivity he fed her a vegemite sandwich some milk and lemonade and before releasing her he gave her a really thorough clean like brushed her teeth flossed cut her nails cleaned her hair like every single surface of her body he cleaned yeah And a very important piece of evidence that Sharon could give to the investigators was that she could hear low-flying planes, and that makes the investigators think that he was either living under a flight path or near Melbourne Airport. So Mm. he was probably living, like, northwest, and his attacks were northeast. Okay. Not northwest. Wait, north, south, east, west. North, east. (laughs) You just said everything. Northwest. (laughs) Every option. I'm not sure. He was Um, living near the airport. (laughs) Okay, now skipping a year and a half later to July 3rd, 1990. At 11.30pm, the perpetrator broke into a house in Canterbury. The parents, Brian and Rosemary, um, weren't at home because they were at a farewell party because the family was moving back to England in a couple of days, I think it was. Such bad timing. They'd be like, if only we left a bit earlier. However, 13-year-old Nicola Linus and 15-year-old Fiona Linus were at home and awoken by a masked intruder holding a knife and yelling at them. He told Nicola to get her school uniform whilst he tied Fiona to her bed and in like the same way as the past attacks with the same nautical mm. knots and everything. The intruder yeah. then told Fiona that her father would have to pay 25000 for her sister's safe return. He disabled the home phones and then kidnapped Nicola, taking her back to what we now know is his house. Brian and So Rose- he, just quickly, like... So he left one of the sisters there. Yeah, he, up, he left and he the took oldest. One of them. He took the thirteen-year-old. Okay. He just took one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the parents returned to the house twenty-five minutes later. Then thirty-six hours after, there was still no sign of Nicola, and the father Brian held a press conference stating that he would pay like any ransom. Um, he, he just needed to know how to pay it. So the perpetrator didn't obviously didn't yeah. care about the money because he hadn't given yeah. like meet me here. So it's like another red herring. Pretty much, kind of. exactly. Um, yeah. Where am I? Oh, ugh, my t- jeans are so freaking tight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my comfy pajamas. That I, just I don't know why I got dressed my up. My new one. I'm in a sparkly top with like tons of necklaces what? and stuff. I'm like, who's seeing me? No one. We're in isolation. Oh, you're like dressed up. No, like as soon as I got, because I actually dressed up like semi-nice. Like I was wearing like just a jumper, but I was like, I'll make myself look alright for Camille, and I put concealer on, um, and like a bit of eyeliner. I've got some and nice makeup on right now. I was really proud. Oh, we were gonna like be looking so nice, and then the internet just was like, no, no, that's not no, gonna happen. No, no um, I'm just yeah, unbuttoning I'm, all my pants and sitting on my bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just like enjoying my pajamas. Like I'm all like huddled up in my cupboard, just like. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay, sorry, keep going. So Nicola's abductor molested her for 50 hours before releasing her <gasps> at a power station in Kew on her 14th birthday. Oh my, oh my God, oh my God. She was able to reveal so some details about the perpetrator. Investigators believe that he's between 30 to 50 years old, 173 yeah. to 180 centimetres tall and has a pot belly. His hair is thought Ugh. to be fair and sandy and he kept saying Worrywart, Bozo and Missy. Ew, oh my god, it's like so gross. It's so like, it just sounds like dad or like grandpa language. Like I, I hate Missy. Ugh. She was also able to give details about the home because when she had the chance she would quickly take on and off her blindfold, which is just so dangerous because he, yeah. he I can't remember, I didn't write down the quote, 
Um, but he said something like, my ident- my freedom is more important than your life or something like that. Yeah, I think I remember reading that. Um, there's a few sketches if of the house, of the apartment, wherever mm-hmm. she was, um, that people can look up if they're interested. However, it is very, um, what's it called? Like a cream kind of, where's my word? I can't see. Peach. <laughs> Gum peach. Peach. <laughs> It's very what? Sorry. Like peach colored curtains, peach bed heads oh. for a double bed, striped oh. yellow and white lampshade, and a peach colored lamp base. Two bedside tables. So maybe like a like a little bit femme or something. Well, like, I was gonna say like, or, do you think he could have had like a partner or something? Because it was yeah, very, yeah, like very or just feminine. sounds like a it just sounds like a typical like eighties bedroom of like a couple or something. Yeah. Kind of pretty, yeah. Like not really, it doesn't really conjure like not to be like really playing into like gender stereotypes but it doesn't really conjure like a bachelor pad like no it would, kind of it doesn't at all it looks it looks very kind of middle-aged couple mm, mm. and she was also able to make out the bathroom and the interior of his car like sharon nicola had also been attached to the bed by neck brace and could hear low-flying airplanes um mm. and she heard him speaking to someone but she never heard a response so again the investigators think it's another red herring like he was constantly thinking uh, about kind of stuffing up her ideas he was just trying to throw them off yeah that's so creepy that like he's talking and no one's replying and then you're going like who the, who is he talking to like is there someone else but like you can hear that there's not like that would be so disturbing on saturday april 13th 1991 the perpetrator jumped a large brick fence and broke into the home in Templestowe. John and Phyllis Chan were at a work at their restaurant whilst their three daughters, Carly, Karen and Carmen, watched a Marilyn Monroe movie at home. 13-year-old Carmen, the eldest, actually went to school with the third victim, Nicola. The two oh, eldest, yeah. Interesting. The two eldest daughters decided to head to the kitchen to grab something to eat and as they walked down their hallway, they were blocked by a man wearing a balaclava and standing with a knife. He'd gotten into the house through their screen window. How fucking creepy to just like walk out into your hallway and then there's just a man standing well, there. Well, he loved like people bell-a-bell. finding him. He would break into the oh, houses like... and wait for people to realize he was there rather than uh, rather than like jump, like ambushing them or whatever. Gross. Um, he once again told the girls that he didn't want their money. Um, but he then grabbed the girls by the hair and dragged them into their parents' room, shoving Carly and Karen, the two youngest, into a wardrobe and barricading it with a bed. And then he abducted Carmen. So I'm not entirely sure if this happened before he went into the house or when he left. I'm assuming before, but like the three different okay. sources that I read told me different things. Uh, yeah. But he spray painted on John's car, Asian drug deal, payback and more to come. And of course, the investigators okay, so- like looked into it, but it was a red herring again. Yeah, that's, like, yeah, I was going to say, like, so that's obviously just, like, a thing to... It's creepy that, like, he's kind of, like, I don't know, just, like, he knows stuff about the family or he's thinking, like, oh, this is, like, a good thing to, like, throw people off with or something. Like, I, I don't think know. he understands so how investigations like, work. Like, he was meticulously yeah. clean. And-, and, like, the fact that he cleaned, like, that other girl, like, so well and, like, the way that he's been, like, the way that he... I don't know, he's throwing them off and everything. Like, it seems so, um, like, uh, what's the word? Like, meti- I don't know, like, meticulous or something? I don't know. Just, like, he's he's working hard to – he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he knows. Um, yeah. Police dogs traced Carmen's scent through the house, past the family's car, 
um, across the garden and the tennis court, through a gate and onto the street. The trail led police to a vacant block mm-hmm. 300 metres away and from there they didn't know what happened. He probably like hopped into his car and just sped off. Yeah. Carmen had still not been released 72 hours after her abduction and her mother, Phyllis, made a plea on television begging for her daughter's safe return. I watched this the other night and it is terrifying. Oh, really? It is so, so okay. upsetting. I'm, I have to watch it. Yeah, I'm not going to put the audio in this because it made it... It's just horrible. Oh, it's so, like, heart-wrenching. She's holding Carmen's favourite yeah. dress and she's saying, like, this is your favourite dress, you need to come home so you can wear it. And, oh, oh my God. And she's so I just upset. Got, yeah, I just got shivers. It's just, like, these things and, like, it was kind of, like, with my story as well, like, just the way that, like, they affect the families mm. and, like, just how, like, can you even imagine, like, how that would feel, like, your daughter with these disgusting, like, people... Oh, it's so creepy. Also, I just I had a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the previous girl that he had abducted. Yeah. Um, before Carmen. Um, Nicola. um how how long after did he release her? Uh, yeah. Or like he he had released her bef- when Carmen had been abducted. Yeah. Before, before. So. Yeah. So he had done that before. He released her thirty six hours after she was kidnapped. So on July fourth, okay, in nineteen ninety. Yeah. And then Carmen's been kidnapped on April 13th, 1991. Okay, yeah. So, like, later on. Yeah, okay, gotcha. All right. And Carmen's been, like, missing now for, like, 72 hours, did you say? Yeah. So it's, like, it's not fitting his, like, MO from before. Not really. But his MO keeps, yeah. like, getting longer and longer. So, like, the first girl he didn't uh, even take. The second girl yeah, was, like, 24. Took- then it was, like, 32. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Sorry. Keep going. On May 6th. 6, 1991, the investigators created a task force called the Spectrum Task Force to further investigate the case. And it's called Spectrum. I'm like, Ruby Redfoot is so similar to this. Oh, yeah. It's like got the bozo. Yeah, I was just fangirling over it. I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't be fangirling I over wonder it. But I wonder if Lauren Child was like inspired by this story. I feel, I feel like, no, she wouldn't be. But like, I wonder if maybe she like read it or something. I know, it's so weird. Who knows? Um, the rapist and abductor was named by the media and is now known as Mr. Krull. Mm. On April 9th, 1992, almost one year after Carmen's abduction, a man walking his dog in Thomastown found the human remains which were proven to be Carmen's. She had been shot in the head three times. Carmen was described as a stubborn girl who would put up a fight and it is speculated that she might have pulled off Mr. Krull's balaclava, enabling her to identify him or she knew who he was. Wow. Yeah, because, like, it seems as well like he didn't kill any of his other victims, but he obviously was, like, saying that he would kill them if they found out. So, like, he decided, oh, my God, it's so awful as well. It's just, like, so... Anyway, keep going. So nearly three years, I've just copied and pasted this paragraph from Madison Connerton (laughs) from Vice because it was like 10.30 and I was getting tired. (laughs) Okay. All right. Shout out to Madison. Thanks, Madison. So nearly three (laughs) years after this grisly discovery, 40 investigators named the Spectrum Task Force Force, followed 10,000 tip-offs, searched 30,000 houses and arrested 73 people. It was Victoria oh. Police's largest ever investigation at the time. Police even wrote to the state's 10,000 doctors pleading them to br- not bre- to breach the doctor-patient confidentiality because they believed Carmen's abductor mm. may have sought medical help. But the yeah. $4 million wow. manhunt man- man- turned up no answers. Like, there was nothing. Oh, my God. That's insane. That's so many, like, tips and so many, like, houses to search and, like, 
that's just such a crate that's like huge scale and for them to find nothing yeah he was a fucking cop I 100% believe that. Hold on, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to I'm it. I'm sorry, am I ruining this? You can cut that out if you want. <laughs> okay. I'm like ruining it. <laughs> I like called it from the beginning. Well, okay, my next sorry, line is, since then, evidence has been lost or stolen. Oh, oh. shit. But oh, my I'm, God. I've got, okay. I've, got some, I've got some other stuff. I've got another page. So okay, okay. Hold your Keep horses. Going. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Krull has not been discovered, but he may still be alive. The criminal mm. profile of Mr. Krull, compiled by the Victoria Police, will help f- with help from the experts at the FBI because the FBI stepped in in like the nineties. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They stated that the perpetrator was likely to be intelligent, well organized, and someone who would seem to show genuine interest and some devotion to children and may be involved in the education sector. The profile claimed that Mr. Krull would probably be considered a good neighbour and might be involved in community projects whilst having steady employment and possibly self-employed or in a management position that allowed for some freedom and movement. Police Mm. also believe Mr. Krull is likely to have displayed obsessive compulsive behaviours and would show behavioural changes around the time of the offences and during their anniversaries or when the media and police publicly discussed the case. Yeah. So, oh. so the prime suspect is a man called <laughs> Brian Allen Elkner. He's a convicted serial violent sex offender. Tick was released from jail just before the first attack, okay. and this is like the weirdest thing. He wrote a f- yeah. philosophical, philosophical, philosophical. Yeah, philosophical. philosophical. I dropped philosophy in year 11. Yeah, I was um, just, I was literally just about to say, like, you can tell you dropped out of philosophy and uh, I stuck with it. <laughs> I know how to pronounce the word. <laughs> but that's about it. Anyway, keep going. So, it's true, though. Um, he wrote yeah. a philosophical essay on the sublime criminal, which suggested individuals oh. would attempt to do evil as to gain the status of a hero. It's weird. And you know what that, like, is weird about that as well is how he said to the dad, um, don't be a hero. Oh, oh I didn't right? even make that connection. That was such a guttural reaction. <laughs> You're like, oh. <laughs> that's so, isn't that weird Ew. that he said that yeah. as well? Like, the, oh, I think I'm a fucking criminal. Find I the mind. police. I am the police. <laughs> I think I've, I think I should like call the police right now and be like, guys, guys. guys. I think I have a connection. I think I worked something out. We have a podcast, oh, okay. so we uh, know what we're we talking about. We have a podcast. About. We know everything about what there is to know about everything. Step aside um, because we've got it covered. We'll take it from here. Exactly. Exactly. Some okay, other theories. So there's a quite a few <laughs> theories. Some other theories. This theory is quite interesting. Some people mm-hmm. think that Mr. Cruel could be the Golden State Killer. Oh. Yeah, so the Golden State Killer, who's Joseph James Delangelo, was, like, arrested in 2019. Yep, he's been caught. Did you listen to the MFM episode Oh, of it? course. So the Golden State Killer stopped his American crime spree in 1986, and Mr. Cruel begun in 1987. They both have similar MOs, and it's said that Joseph Delangelo had before being the golden state killer he'd he'd moved to australia i think in like the 60s i could be making this up i could be pulling this out of my ass but like i think that's what it said (laughs) none of this is verified um another theory is that he worked in law enforcement which would explain the meticulous nature and the knowledge of how like dna and the overall investigation worked 
Um, yeah, that's what I reckon. Yeah, he didn't have podcasts back then, so how else would he know? Um, and yeah. it would also like <laughs> explain the missing evidence, of course. Yes, that is super weird. Yeah, that is, and but I mean that could also just be like misplacement and just police not realizing. Just shitty police, yeah. Or them just thinking like, oh, it's just not like a big that big of a deal or whatever. 